If you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Amos. Is where we're going to kind of conclude this morning. We've been working our way through different themes and topics in this book, and this morning will be no different. Amos chapter 7, you can put a uh, turn there and then put a finger in Amos chapter 2. We'll come back to Amos 2 as well. But in Amos chapter 7, God gives Amos this picture. He gives him a vision. Um, he, he opens Amos' eyes to see what he's doing amongst his people. And in Amos 7, we see the Lord standing next to a wall uh, that had been constructed with a plumb line. And he's holding a plumb line in his hand. And he says to Amos, his prophet, he says in verse 8 of Amos 7, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword." Now, a plumb line in construction is a vertical line that has a weight or a plumb bob on the bottom of it, and it's held at, one, at the top of a wall, and it's draped down to the bottom of a wall to determine if that wall back in those days was square, if it was running vertical or not, or if it was off square, if it was leaning some degrees to the outside or some degrees to the inside. And God says that he's setting a plumb line in the midst of his people so that everything that doesn't square with his nature, everything that doesn't square with his character, everything that doesn't square with his commands, he says, I'm going to begin to de- deconstruct it and tear it down. The high places where you've gone to worship other gods are going to be torn down. The injustices amongst the people are going to be righted. Are going to be those, the, the power structures are going to be torn down. I'm going to lay them waste. God says, I'm going to tear down everything that doesn't square with who I am and what, I, what I'm about. So he says, I won't pass them by. I won't spare them judgment any longer. And listen, I want you to know something. That there are some things in Amos' day that needed to be torn down, just like there are things in our day that need to be torn down. They do not square with God's character or his nature or his commands. And one of the things God says that needs to be torn down is the disposition of his people towards those who have been afflicted. Go to Amos chapter 2. In Amos chapter 2, verses 6 to 7, whenever God confronts his people and calls them on the carpet on account of their sin, listen to what he says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Now what does it mean to turn aside the way of the afflicted? The way of somebody in the Bible oftentimes was a reference to their conduct or their behavior or their actions. But that's not how the word's used here. It wouldn't make sense here. That you turn aside the conduct of the afflicted or you turn aside the actions of the afflicted or you turn aside the behavior of the afflicted doesn't, doesn't make sense. That word, if you look it up in the Hebrew dictionaries, it can also mean this, their customary experience in life or their condition. Not their conduct, but their condition, the condition they find themselves in. He says, Israel, that's what you're guilty of, of turning a blind eye to the condition of those who have been afflicted within your culture those who are in power who have privilege and wealth you've turned a blind eye to the condition of people who have been underneath you in this social caste system that has been constructed amongst my people you've turned aside you dismissed their perspective you denied them their dignity you discarded their lives you've thrust them away you've turned them aside you've given them no attention 
And listen, I want, you to, I, I want to say something this morning. In our nation and in our churches, right, we have had a history of turning aside the way of the afflicted. In our nation and in our churches, we have turned aside the way of the afflicted. And we could talk about all sorts of issues that give evidence to that this morning, but the one that I want to talk about is this, is racism. Now listen, that is not a popular topic in white evangelical churches. I know that. And so listen, when I say the word racism, I'm not the first pastor who will be tuned out uh, whenever they use that word and talk about that topic, and I won't be the last. But I hope you won't this morning. I hope you'll weigh everything that I say in the context of the whole message and not just take sound bites. And I hope you'll consider the issues at stake in this text and what, what, what God says to his ancient people Israel and what says, he says to his modern people in the church as we talk about this issue. Racism. Racism, let me give you a working definition. It's prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism. It's rooted in pride and it's directed against someone of a different race based on belief that one's own race is superior. It's rooted in pride and superiority and it's discrimination, it's prejudice, it's antagonism based upon the color of someone's skin or based upon someone's ethnicity. Now there are many objections people might have in the room this morning to why we should not talk about this in church. Right? There are some folks who think, man, there's just some things you don't talk about in church, right? You just don't talk about that, don't go there. But listen, if we made, and, and one of the reasons people feel that way is because it makes people uncomfortable to talk about racism or even about race in general. But listen, if the litmus test was how uncomfortable it made people to talk about an issue in church, there'd be a whole lot of issues that would be off the table for us to address that God's word speaks very plainly and clearly to. So we can't just say because it makes people uncomfortable, we don't talk about it. Some of us, in addition, we think that just by talking about the issue, we're going to make things worse. By addressing it, we're going to make it worse. But listen, if you applied that same logic, listen, to your parenting, when you have an issue with your children, if you don't talk about it, if you don't address it, if you just sweep it under the rug, if you just forget about it, does it make things worse or does it make them better? Right? When in your marriage, if you apply the same logic to your marriage, if there's challenges or struggles or issues in your marriage, what do you do? Do you ignore them or do you address them? Do you lean into them or do you dismiss them? Right? If you apply the same logic to anything else, it doesn't hold water because you want to address issues in parenting. You want to address issues in marriage. You want to address issues in all other relational contexts of life. And the reason we address them is because we want to make things better. We want to move past them. We want to move through them. We want to work for understanding. And the same is true about this issue. In addition, some of us don't think that it's worth addressing because we don't think it's still present. And the reason we may not think it's still present is because we haven't felt the, the, the stinging bite of it in our own lives. It has not been our experience. Listen, being a part of a majority culture. And listen, I, I want to say, I met with somebody earlier this week and they were like, man, we, we enjoy Redeemer. We, we're going to probably keep coming because... Not the only reason, but one of the reasons was there's just diversity, some diversity here. We have some Hispanic families who are part of the congregation. We have some African-American families who are part of the congregation. We have an elder who has Indian ethnicity, right? He was up here leading us in prayer a moment ago and doing announcements. But there's some, there's some diversity here. But listen, we are predominantly situated in a white, Caucasian, 80, I think 88, 89% of our Rockwall County is white, 
And any time you're a part of a majority culture, it's always advantageous to you to be a part of that majority culture. Not only when it comes to the black and white divide that has been historic in our nation, but any other culture you might travel to. To be a part of the majority culture always has advantages that are connected to it. And when some of us hear the term white privilege, right, we bristle at that because we think that what they're saying is that as white people, we've never had struggle. We've never had challenges. We don't get sick. We don't have financial troubles. That's not what it's saying at all. What it's saying is this, is you haven't been discriminated against based upon your skin color and the way that minorities have within our, our nation, within our culture, and oftentimes within our churches. I was listening to a podcast the other day. It was by a man who was a, a white brother, and he was talking about attending an Indian brother's wedding. Right? Somebody who grew up in India and had all kinds of customs and traditions. There was just, just these colorful garments and garb everybody's decked out in. There's this ethnic cuisine everyone's eating. There were these cultural traditions they were observing throughout the whole ceremony before and afterwards. And that white brother went to his Indian brother and said, Listen, I wish I had culture. Like, you have culture. That's culture. And his Indian brother looked at him and said, Brother, you do have culture. And every time your culture comes in contact with another one, it wins. Like, that is, I know that's hard to hear. I know it's hard to hear, and we bristle at that. But that's just, that's reality. It's been the history of our nation. Listen, I grew up in South Louisiana with family members family members and friends and peers and still have family members who use the N-word with no shame to refer to people of color. I served in a church in central Louisiana as a student pastor of a predominantly, if almost exclusively, Caucasian church who the neighborhoods around that church had changed over the years and so now it's predominantly a Caucasian church in the middle of a black community and you had white affluent white affluent families driving in to come to this church while the neighborhoods around it were not being served by the church. And so we began to take people out in the community, knock on doors, invite people to church, engage people who lived literally blocks from where we were. And I got raised eyebrows and pushback and blowback from all the white parents who drove in to First Baptist Church. It is still an issue within our culture. And it still erupts time and time again. And here's, listen, here's one of the reasons I believe it does. It's because to a large part we have not come to grips with our history as a nation or as a church. And our history is one that requires repentance. It requires repentance. Listen, I'm going to take about 10 minutes this morning and give you just a brief flyover of about 400 years of history. Okay? Can't hit everything, but I'm going to hit some things. To try and build a context for us to understand the historical situation that we're coming out of and into. In 1619, there were approximately 20 blacks from a Dutch slave trader who were purchased as indentured workers at Jamestown, Virginia. They were the first Africans in the English North American colonies. Indentured servitude was the norm up to that po- at, at that point in history where if you could not afford your passage from the old world to the new world, you sold yourself to someone in the new world, traveled with them, you worked for seven years and you were released and had land and you could start an independent life. 
But not long after that, literally within 30 years, it shifted from indentured servitude into what became known as slavery in the United States of America. In 1641, Massachusetts became the first mainland British colony to legally institutionalize slavery. In 1642, Virginia passed a fugitive slave law, fining anyone assisting runaway slaves and introducing the branding of people. In 1643, the New England Confederation agrees that the signature of a judge is sufficient evidence to re-enslave a suspected fugitive slave. So whether they were ever a slave or not, all you needed was a judge who might take a bribe under the table to sign a legal document saying they had been enslaved and they could go right back. Whether, whether, they, whether they had ever been slave, uh, enslaved before, they would be put right into that slave master's house. In 1650, Connecticut legalizes slavery. In 1662, Virginia reversed the English standard of law that the child followed the status of his father and enacted a law that made their status, whether they were going to be free or slave, follow the status of their mother, which allowed white Caucasian slave masters to violate African women with no responsibility for the offspring. In 1663, Maryland enacts slave laws that presume any African arriving in the colony is a slave. In 1663, in South Carolina, every white settler was awarded 20 acres for each black male and 10 acres for each black female slave they brought into the colony. And by 1664, in Virginia, black and slave had become synonymous. They were one and the same. In 1664 as well, Maryland established slavery for life for persons of African ancestry. 1670, the Massachusetts legislator passes a law allowing the sale of children of enslaved Africans into bondage, thus separating them from their parents. In 1682, Virginia altered the slave code to forbid self-defense by any African American against any European American. Could not defend yourself any longer if you're a person of color. By 1960, all English colonies in America have enslaved Africans. And that's just the 1600s. In 1702, the New York Assembly enacts a law which prohibits enslaved Africans from testifying against whites or gathering in groups larger than three on public streets. In 1711, a public slave market opened on the east end of Wall Street in New York City. Think the Fort Yorth stockyards, except in the corrals are human beings. In 1712, New York City enacted an ordinance that prevents free blacks from inheriting land, undercutting their economic opportunity. In 1716, the first enslaved Africans arrived in Louisiana. In 1718, New Orleans is founded by the French, and by 1721, the city had more enslaved black men than free white men. In 1721, South Carolina limited the vote to free white Christian men. In 1741, they enacted that same colony, uh, enacted legislation banning the teaching of enslaved people to read, write, prohibiting them from assembling in groups, and permitting slave owners to kill difficult to deal with slaves. In 1762, Virginia restricts voting rights to white men. 1793, there's been a revolutionary war fought since then, so we have a Congress in place now, and they enact the first national fugitive slave law, providing assistance to fugitive runaway slaves is now a criminal offense punishable by law in the United States. In, in, In 1800, Congress rejects 85 to 1, an anti slavery petition offered by the free African Americans from Philadelphia. In 1802, the state of Ohio finally outlaws slavery but also prohibits free blacks from voting. And in 1804, that same state passes the Ohio Black Codes, placing exclusive restrictions on its African-American residents that were not placed on any other residents. 
1807, New Jersey disenfranchises black voters, robbing them of the right to vote. In 1808, the U.S. government abolishes eventually the importation of enslaved Africans, but it's widely ignored because of the economic prosperity that it brought particularly to the South. And between 1808 and 1860, approximately 250,000 blacks are illegally imported into the U.S., In 1831, North Carolina bans teaching slaves how to read and write. In 1831, Alabama makes it illegal for enslaved or free blacks to preach the Bible. In 1834, South Carolina bans the teaching of black slave or free within its borders. In 1836, Texas declares its independence from Mexico and in its constitution recognizes slavery, making it difficult for free blacks to remain here. In 1836... The gag rule prohibits Congress from considering any petition for the abolishment of slavery. It read as follows, Resolved that all petitions, memorials, resolutions, propositions, or papers relating in any way or to any extent whatever to to the subject of slavery or the abolition of slavery shall without being either printed or referred be laid on the table, be tabled, and no further action whatever be taken thereon. Anything that's brought to us, we're going to table and not discuss and not act upon. In 1844, the Legislative Committee of the Provisional Government of Oregon enacts the first of a series of black exclusion laws, excluding blacks from settling in the state. In 1847, Missouri bans the education of free blacks. In 1858, Arkansas enslaves free blacks who refuse to leave the state. In 1860, South Carolina secedes from the Union, and in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect in 1865, and the 13th Amendment outlaws slavery in the United States of America. But the end of the Civil War did not mark the end of racism. On June 19, 1865, is when enslaved blacks in Texas finally received word of their emancipation. It's marked every year on June 19th, and Juneteenth is a holiday when we finally heard that we had been set free. And between September and November of 1865, southern states began to pass black codes, framing injustice by statutes. On April 9th, Congress overrides the president's veto to enact the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And on the heels of that, from May 1 to 3rd in 1866, white civilians and police in Memphis, Tennessee, killed 46 African Americans, injured many more, burned down 90 houses, 12 schools, and 4 churches in what is known as the Memphis Massacre. On September 28, 1868, in Opelousas, Louisiana, between two and 300 black people are killed by whites opposed to Reconstruction and the black vote. On March 30, 1870, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified, giving black males the right to vote. And in 1875, Jim Crow laws are enacted in Tennessee. Listen, by 1875, there were, the 44th Congress had eight black members. But by 1883, the 50th Congress had no black members because of intimidation by whites kept black voters from going to the polls. On November 3, 1883, whites in Danville, Virginia, seized control of the locally, racially integrated, and popularly elected government killing four African Americans in the process. This era in America's history was dubbed by Mark Twain the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age because of the economic prosperity, the thin guild of economic prosperity over the pus of racial apartheid that still raged within the nation. By 1889, the directors of the International League, now known as the Major League Baseball, had forced out all black baseball players from professional baseball. In 1889, Florida becomes the first state to excise a poll tax disenfranchising black voters. In 1890, Mississippi approved a new state constitution that disenfranchised nearly all the state's black voters through literacy and comprehension tests. 
to prevent them from casting ballots in the Supreme... And in 1898, the Supreme Court upheld those provisions. And over the next several years, 20 years, South Carolina, Louisiana, North Carolina, Alabama, Virginia, Georgia, and Oklahoma followed suit. And we could go on and on and on and on and on. I'll give you another one. In Louisiana, in 1898, the legislature introduced the Grandfather Clause, which stated that only males whose fathers or grandfathers were qualified to vote on January 1, 1867, were automatically registered, while all others must comply with educational or property ownership requirements. In other words, if your grandfather or father weren't, wasn't registered at the end of the Civil War to vote, then you can't vote without passing our test or owning property. And the question is, how many of those were actually would have been registered at the end of the Civil War era. In the early 1900s, race riots broke out across major cities within our nation. In 1910, the City Council of Baltimore, Maryland, approved an ordinance segregating black and white neighborhoods. And this ordinance would be followed by similar statutes in Greensboro, Louisville, Norfolk, Oklahoma, Richmond, Roanoke, St. Louis, and Dallas. Segregating blacks to one side of the tracks and whites to the other. In 1913, Woodrow Wilson's administration initiated racial segregation of federal offices across the nation. In 1917, 10,000 African Americans and their supporters marched down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan as perhaps the first, the very first civil rights demonstration of the 20th century in our nation, protesting the lynchings, race riots, and denial of civil rights. In 1921, I've only got a couple more, just so just bear with me. In 1921, a race riot erupted in Tulsa, Oklahoma with two full days of violence by whites against blacks, leaving 50 people dead, hundreds injured, and more than a thousand black-owned homes and businesses destroyed. In 1938, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a state that provided in-state education for whites must provide the same for blacks. They ruled in 1944 that only white political primaries are unconstitutional. They ruled in 1946 that intrastate or interstate, traveling from state to state on a bus, segregation there is unconstitutional. In 1948, they ruled that state and local governments cannot enforce racially restricted housing covenants, which were legal documents put together by residents of a neighborhood, right, reg regulating what races they would allow in, what races they would not allow in to their particular neighborhoods. The Supreme Court struck those down in 1948. 1951, they ruled that racial segregation in D.C. restaurants was unconstitutional. And that same day, they ruled that uh, in Cicero, Illinois, a mob of 3,500 whites showed up to prevent a black family from moving into an apartment building. In 1955, a 14-year-old Chicago resident named Emmett Till was lynched and killed while vacationing in Mississippi. While at a local grocery store with his cousins, as he left the grocery store, he whistled at the white clerk who was behind the counter, Carolyn Bryant. Soon after the incident, Roy Bryant, her husband, who was 24, and his half-brother, J.W. Milam, appeared where Till was staying around 2.30 a.m. They were armed and they kidnapped Till, and because there are kids in the room, I cannot say everything else they did to the young man. But he was eventually shot and dumped into the river the two fishermen found his body three days later. In September, whenever his mother returned to Mississippi for the trial, under heavy protection, she testified in court, but soon had to leave afterwards for fear of her lives. And to discredit her powerful testimony, the defense argued that she took out an insurance policy on her son and sent him to Mississippi to be killed. And the body found was a cadaver placed by the NAACP. 
the jury of all white males acquitted the two men of the charges and a few months later they appeared in an article in Look Magazine confessing to the crime and received $4,000 for their interview. And many looking back on that incident would say that it sparked the modern civil rights movement in the United States. So in 1955, Rosa Parks refuses to relinquish her seat on a bus. In 1955, the Supreme Court desegregates schools. They also rule that segregation in intrastate travel from place to place within a city or a state is unconstitutional. In 1956, the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission is formed in Jackson to maintain racial segregation. Over and over and over again, when progress was sought, it was stifled. It sought to be stifled. In 1958, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was organized with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as its first president. In 1963, Birmingham police used dogs and fire hoses to attack civil rights demonstrators. In 1963 as well, in September, the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama is bombed, killing four young girls, 11 to 14 years of age. I could read more. I've got about 100 of them. But what I, what, what I hope you will hear is that the civil rights movement even did not end legal, although it ended legal segregation and discrimination, it did not put an end to racism. And one thing is overwhelmingly clear. Even in 2000, this is the last one, even in 2007, the U.S. Supreme Court in two separate cases ruled that race cannot be a factor in the determination of school assignments when school districts in these cases were still voluntarily using race as a determiner for enrollment of who can go where. In 2007. See, one thing that becomes overwhelmingly clear when you read the history of race relations in our culture, which, by the way, the church has largely mirrored in the way that it has operated as well, is that not one right or legal protection or provision was ever given to the minority culture out of the goodness of the majority culture's heart. It was always something that was fought for. In the colonies, it was through slave rebellions. In the civil rights era, it was through legal battles, through nonviolent protests, through marches and demonstrations. It was never just handed. The same protections and privileges were never just given to those of the minority culture. And so what do we do with this? Right? Now listen, let me be real, real clear. This is not, you should walk out of here feeling guilty for being white Sunday. Okay? I'm not saying, you should feel no less, no more guilty for being white than your African American brothers feel for being black or your Hispanic brothers feel for having tan skin or your Indian brother has for having brown skin. Listen, that's not what I'm saying. Right? There's nobody in this room that needs to repent of the color of their skin. That's not what I'm saying. So hear me on that. That is not what I'm saying at all. But listen, here's what I want to say. That there is repentance that is necessary based upon the history of race relations in our nation. You don't need to apologize for being white. You don't need to apologize for being black. You don't need to apologize for being Hispanic or Indian or any other ethnicity or race. But what we do need to recognize and repent from is turning a blind eye to the discrepancies and tension in our culture. To turning aside the way of the afflicted. Those who historically within our nation have been afflicted and oppressed. See, it, it was in the 1960s that MLK said that the 
greatest hurdle to equality amongst the races, listen, this is hard to hear, I know it is, was the moderate white. The moderate white pastor, the moderate white church who while may feeling some level of conviction in their soul for the way their black brothers and sisters were being treated within our nation and within our churches remained silent out of fear for rocking the boat. They didn't think they had a big enough life raft if they were to rock that boat, they were going to drown. And listen, that can, the, the racial tension within our nation, the, because the, the moderate white church was silent for years and years and years. One pastor named Thabiti Anabwile, who's a pastor of Anacosta River Church in Maryland, it's an African-American brother, he said that the white church in our era holds a disproportionate responsibility to tell the truth about these issues and address them. And I think he's right. I think he's right. See, some of us need to repent I need to repent at times from rolling my eyes every time somebody with a different skin color than we have gets on TV to talk about their experiences or use their platform to speak for equality just because it's not our experience doesn't mean it's not their experience we need to we need to slow down when, when we want to say things like when the next time an unarmed black man is shot in the streets we want we need to slow down before we say hey just wait for all the facts to come out right just wait for all the facts. That's, that's not helpful in those conversations. Right? We need to turn away from our immediate dismissal of racial inequities or injustice. We need to repent from ignoring the customary experience or condition of our black and brown skinned brothers and sisters. Listen, I, the place, and, and listen, the place to start is not with color blindness. You see color just like I do. We all do. That's not the place to start. To say that you're colorblind and you don't see color is the same thing as like going up to a, uh, me going up to a, a lady in the congregation saying, I don't, I don't see gender, right? I don't, I don't see you're a woman. That's, that's, not, that's not helpful. It's not helpful in the conversation to say that we're colorblind. Right? The place to start is by truth-telling and the willingness to have conversations without shutting people down about their experiences and being willing to turn an ear that would listen. We talked about this last week as we talked about kind of evaluating different movements within our culture and saying, hey, here's, one's, here's biblical justice and here's the cultural conversation about justice is this, is that we seek to, be, to understand before we ever seek to be understood. We need to listen to people and their experiences. Just because it wasn't ours doesn't mean it was not theirs. And listen, I, I just want to go on record this morning. Right? Many of you would agree with some of these statements. But I want to go on record by saying, listen, the transatlantic slave trade, the oppression of minorities in our nation and churches, segregation in neighborhoods and policies that kept that intact for years, and in our churches, the Jim Crow laws in the South, they never had a place for God's vision and the new humanity in Christ in the church. But the church mirrored the culture year after year after year after year in these things. So segregated churches and communities may be comfortable, but they are not God's design. They are not God's design. And listen, lest you think racism is just a cultural issue, I want you to, I want you to know it is a church issue. And I want you to know that the church of Jesus Christ is equipped 
is equipped to address the issue like no one else is. Economics won't do this. Politics will not do this. The church is exclusively, uniquely equipped for this work of racial reconciliation. Let me give you a couple, let me, let me tell you a couple of reasons why. First, because the church is called to show the community that what has been does not have to be. Do you know that? The church is called to show the world, not only at a personal level, right? That's how we tend to think of it. When people come to faith in Jesus, that we get to show the world that what has been in their personal decisions and choices does not have to be any longer. But I want you to know that's also at a collective level, a corporate level. That we get to show the world that what has been does not have to be. And we have a unique power to do it. It's the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit to take people from diverse backgrounds and walks of life and bring them together as one new man in Christ. That's exactly Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 2. There's one new man. Not two new men. Like you become a new black man or you become a new white man in Christ. No, you become one new man in Christ. And the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, is exclusively, uniquely equipped for that work in our day and in our time. To show the world that what has been does not have to be. I'm landing the plane. But listen, to do this, we must move from from just acknowledging the wrongs of the past, right, to working to right them in the present. Let me tell you what I mean by where that starts. First, I think it starts by telling the truth about the past. Listen, I've read white evangelical scholars on blog posts and in articles who try to kind of whitewash that era of, of America's history. and say, well, no, it didn't really happen like that. This is what happened. And yet the historical accounts, the newspaper articles, the television, you can, you can see it all chronicled out there before you. In this day and age, at one click of a button on the internet from reputable sources. Right? So we tell the truth about the past. And listen, second of all, you have to work in the context of relationships. There will be no racial reconciliation. There will be no turning an eye to the way of the afflicted without it being done so in the context of a relationship. It's not done in a vacuum. Right? But with real people across a table or on a couch or in a living room or in a Bible study or in the context of a workplace through real conversation with real people in real relationships. Right? Third, you've got to listen to those who are not like you before you try and come at them with your perspective. Fourth, and this is a big one, church, is we, we, we as an evangelical church, not just pertaining to this issue but to lots of issues, need to learn to lament. You know, the Bible, the Psalms are full of Psalms of lament. You know what Psalms of lament do? They express grief and sadness over sin, over injustice. And we don't do well at that because we, we want to come to a place where we can just rejoice and clap and shout and have a great time. And we do want to, as Stanley prayed earlier, give thanks to God for the things that he's doing in our lives, the grace that he's showing, the healing that he's bringing, all those things. We give thanks to God for those things. But we need to learn to lament the diagnosis of a brother or a sister without trite or, or trite responses to them in their physical ailments. We need to learn to lament the experiences of a brother or sister and be able to empathize with them and enter, try to enter into their experience and feel with them what they have gone through, the things that have been said to them, the things that have been done to them. 
We need to learn to lament and grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn. We do a great job of rejoicing with those who rejoice, but we don't do a great job of grieving and mourning with those who mourn because it makes us uncomfortable. In addition, we need to use our voice for people who are not like us and give our time to people who are not like us. We've talked earlier in this series about being an advocate. And there, there, there are instances and times in which, because we, the white church does bear a disproportionate responsibility because of the historical sins, to use their voice, to use their voice to turn people to the plight of those who have been afflicted. Listen, I want to encourage you as we, as we close this morning, in, in, in November, those are, just, those are just scratching the surface. This, this is a huge issue. A huge issue that I can't, I can't do justice to in 40 minutes. Right? And my time's up. But in, in November, we have two men in our church who are going to be teaching a renew course. Not this next slate that starts in a couple of weeks, but in November on this issue of racial reconciliation. Now, this is something that God has struck in your heart. Whether it be there's anger rising in you right now, whether there's frustration rising in you right now, whether there's sadness rising in you right now, whether there's conviction rising in you right now, whatever it is that is stirring within your soul, I want to encourage you. Let's have the conversation. Let's talk about the issues. And whether you don't have to wait till November to do that, right? I, man, I, set, let's set up an appointment. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Let's, let's, let's talk through things. What did you disagree with? What did you agree with? Let's put it on the table. Let's work through it together, right? Because just ignoring the issue is not going to help us move through it. But listen, as, as, we, as we close, I want to say this to you as well. That our work for racial reconciliation, to turn our eyes towards the condition of those in our culture who historically have been have suffered at the hands of the majority culture, to turn our eyes towards them, listen, can never merely be driven by guilt over our past. It cannot. That will not sustain us. But it has to be driven by hope for our future. See, the end of the book of Amos, God comes to Amos and says, all this judgment's coming, but listen, there's gonna be a day in which wine's going to flow again, in which the, 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 the treader of the grapes is going to overtake the plowman. In other words, the work in the fields is going to come to the vats and they're going to tread out the wine, the grapes, and we're going to have wine. There's going to be blessing that's going to flow from God once again and things are going to be restored. Your fortunes are going to be restored. And listen, I tell you this, church, that the end of the book tells us that one day, around the throne of God, around the throne of the Lamb, that there will be men and women from every tribe and every nation and every tongue that will be gathered to give thanks and praise to their God who has saved them, who has redeemed them, who has renewed them. That that day's coming. There's hope for that in the future. And listen, we should not just be driven forward by guilt over a past, but drawn forward by our hope for the future. So that that hope for the future comes back into the present and begins to shape the conversations we're having now and today in this present reality that we find ourselves in. That hope is powerful. Guilt is impotent. It's impotent. It is not powerful enough to drive us forward. Only hope is. 
And so because of that hope, let's live with a vigilance to have the conversation, to enter into the issues, and to be, to be a beacon of light to this culture and community in which we live that says the way things were does not have to be the way things are. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm weary. And Father, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if everything that I've said is right. And God, I'm open to challenge and critique. First and foremost from you. Through your people. But Father, I pray that whatever conversations are initiated on the heels of this subject... God, I ask that we could have them compassionately and with kindness. Father, I pray, I pray that you would make us into a people who are willing to listen before we speak. You'd make us into a people who are able to lament over the atrocities of the past and the present. And open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. And I pray you would start with me. You would start in my heart, you would start in my mind, that you would start in my soul. But that, God, that we would look forward toward this new order that you will establish one day when every wrong is made right. And that built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, that your church would thrive and flourish as a countercultural witness. in a very charged, intense environment. But that we would not let that tension and the discomfort push us back from the, com- from the table and having the conversation. Give us wisdom. Father, anything that I've said this morning that does not square with a biblical vision for humanity, God, I pray that you would convict me.
And Father, may you even just strike it in the only way that you can. But may the truth of your word resonate within us and call us to action. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.